Thank you, Jane, <laughs> very much indeed. We're pushing on then in James, and uh, you can catch up last week's sermon if you missed it online or there are CDs uh, <clears throat> at the back of the church. Everything you need is at that forward slash uh, faith that works uh, URL. I encourage you to, to look it up there, to bookmark it, to uh, sign up at iTunes, whatever, whatever works for you. Make sure that week by week you keep up with where, where we are and uh, follow the journey with us. James is a short enough book for you to kind of know it pretty well from beginning to end. You can memorize it if you like. That's not impossible to do. Uh, certainly, I would like you to be very familiar with it so you know what's coming next. You know what's gone. You can see how the whole thing fits together. Last week, we got our bearings with the opening verse. James, who is the James? He's the brother of Jesus, another child uh, of Mary and Joseph, although Jesus was of Mary and God himself, but another member of the, the family. It was a big family, as it seemed to turn out, uh, a family that uh, turned out to be hugely influential uh, for the uh, early church of, of Jesus. Although not at the beginning. We saw last time how James really struggled to understand what his older brother was about. They didn't believe in him, didn't accept him, and uh, we've no idea exactly what happens until we find out that he meets the risen Jesus and uh, eventually becomes a very significant leader, senior leader of the church of Jerusalem and uh, suitably empowered by the Spirit in order to lead the church at a very important important debate, theological debate they had in Acts chapter 15 about how Gentiles ought to be treated. By the time James writes, so he's the leader of the mother church, that church got scattered, Christians got sent all over the empire because of persecution, and now some years later, he's writing to the diaspora, to the dispersion, to the scattered group of Christians in order to encourage them, specifically in their context, which was uh, a time of uh, persecution and intense trial, and it's no wonder that in these verses, that's exactly what uh, James begins with, and so we'll begin there this morning. How much longer? Let's pray. Father, as we get into uh, your word this morning, we ask that you would help us to understand it in its context, but you'd help us to help it make the journey from what happened back then right into our situation and into our circumstance. Help it to make sense in our lives today. Help it to be purposeful for our journey, for that's what we believe your word is here for uh, today. So speak it into our hearts, we ask, in Jesus' name. So let's kick off in verse uh, 2. And uh, while you're just getting it, this Bible has been hanging around in church for ages. It's uh, the New American Standard, so uh, some of you will know it's not yours. But others of you, this might be yours. Really nice leather Bible. Um, so uh, the open Bible, it's the expanded edition. And the words of Christ are even in blue. No, they're not. They're in red. Okay, so if you want that, then um, come and get that if it's yours. If um, you think it's yours, then come and have a look. Or you can do what I did once, was there was a Bible knocking around for ages. It was pretty lovely. No one claimed it, so I used it. I used it for about a year until I was in one meeting when someone said, that's my Bible. And I simply said, oh, great, there you are then. And uh, they were happy and I was happy. So uh, you, can, you can do that as well if you like. But let's try and find out whose it is because it's been knocking around for ages. Verse 2, here we go. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. Pure joy. Christians, or Christian, James says, 
Consider it joy. We are to be known by our joy. I want you to ask your neighbor, how joyful am I, do you think? Jesus said that joy, joy would be a mark of our discipleship. He said, my joy will be in you and my joy will be complete. Uh, and and as, a, as an aside, uh, James, who's kind of uh, uh, grown up with Jesus and uh, obviously knew so much more about Jesus' ways from the inside out. He, he picks up so many of the themes that we read in the Gospels about Jesus' life. And here's one of them about joy. So I've told you this, that your, my joy may be in you. So if you listen and obey, there's a, there's, there's a journey of joy for us. So how joyful are you? Uh, and we laughed a little nervously because we probably know that we're not as joyful as we could be. Anyone understand where I am this morning? That you know you could be a little more uh, joyful. And, and if I said, well, well, why aren't you? Why aren't you full of joy every single day? You would say probably, if you were being honest, and I would too, well, uh, it's, it's because of what I face. It's because of my circumstances. It's because of what's going on around me. If those things were different, then I would be more joyful. If I wasn't so stressed with my job, if I didn't have uh, worry about money, if I wasn't anxious about my health, if I, I wasn't so tired, if there didn't seem to be so much to do, if my life didn't seem so out of control, if, 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 and it, it could be anything... If those things were cleared up, sorted out, then I would be full of joy. And we'll live with the idea that that if I can only get some of these things sorted out in my life, then perhaps I can begin to aspire to the kind of joy that Jesus spoke about and James speaks about here. But, But James, in one single verse kind of harpoons or bursts our bubble in that regard. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. In other words, consider the reality of the joy of Jesus that is within you even when and even though your circumstances, your situation is not what you would long for it to be. And we can spend all of our lives waiting for that perfect moment when apparently joy will rise and be and find that it's eluded from us. In the face of it, it's such a weird juxtaposition, isn't it? To our pleasure-seeking, fun-loving, self-serving culture that you can have pure joy Not after the trial is over or before it's begun because you don't even know it's going to happen. But whenever you face trials of many kinds. The language is interesting. It's kind of as diverse as you like. The trials that we face are as varied and as different as the grains of sand on the seashore. And James says, in the midst of that, you can live with pure joy. 
And yet as Christians, if we're honest, if we strip ourselves away, we know that this morning that we'll have trials and, and, and so often we find that joy eluding us. So how can we square the circle that when our circumstances are not what we want them to be, we can still be full of joy? Would you like to share your lives your spouse, your parents, your children, your friends, to be full of joy. Would that bless you if they were full of joy? Would you be a blessing to them if you were full of joy? And James says, look, there's a joy. There's a joy to be found even when the circumstances aren't right. It's no wonder that in order to understand this, in order to, to kind of move into it, we need God's wisdom, which is exactly in a verse or two what James will be encouraging us to ask. If you feel out of your depth, if you feel like it doesn't make sense, if you've got no idea how to square the circle of having joy despite the circumstances, then James will say in just a couple of verses, you need to ask God for that wisdom. But before we get there, look at verse 3 with me. What is James saying here? You can have joy even in the midst of trials, trials of any kind, not just certain trials, all kinds of trials, you can have pure joy because, verse 3, you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. He's saying that trials, challenges, struggles, difficulties are the soil in which your faith grows. Challenge, struggle, trial is the soil in which your faith grows. Have joy, says James, in all kinds of trials because you know that in those trials it will cause your faith, that Paul says that's more valuable than anything else, it will cause your faith to grow in a way that it would never have grown without those trials. An athlete, and James will use the image of, a, of an athlete's victor crown when we get to verse 12, but an athlete will put himself through trials, through tests. Uh, and the word there in Greek for tests is, is the kind of activity that, that, that puts you under pressure so that you grow and your character develops. So an, an athlete will set him or herself certain trials, certain tests. It's why we get up early in the morning and run a bit. It's why we stay up late at night and run a bit or do whatever your particular thing is. You give yourself a test, a trial, because you know that without that test, without that trial, your muscles, your body, your character will not grow. James says, whenever we face trials, it is the moment, it is the soil in which faith can grow. It is the opportunity for our faith muscle to be stretched. And when your faith muscle, like another muscle, gets stretched and pushed, it recovers and then becomes stronger and more effective as a result. As you persevere in trust, in obedience, in your total allegiance to Jesus, remember last week, your character, your life is shaped towards maturity. If you strip it all away, here we go. This is the big idea in these verses. Embrace the trials because they will make you more like Jesus. Embrace the trials because they will make you more like Jesus. This is not conventional wisdom. This is not what most of the time we're encouraged to do. This is not what often, even as Christians, 
we don't encourage one another to do. At the moment the trial strikes, and and the language is the same word used as when Jesus told the story of the man going from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers. So it kind of suddenly, unexpectedly, out of the blue. Trials come suddenly, unexpectedly, out of the blue. You can't anticipate them most of the time. You you don't know where they're going to come from. Suddenly, out of a clear blue sky, they, they hit you. At the moment when trial strikes, conventional wisdom asks, you and I will most naturally say, how much longer do I have to put up with this? The title of the sermon. When will this difficulty be over? That's probably the first thing we want to know. How will this difficulty be sorted out? How can I quickly restore my equilibrium? How can I, as fast as possible, get my life back to the normality that I thought I was going for? How quickly can I get back on track with my agenda? Anyone know what I'm talking about? That's what we want to know. How how soon can I get this over with? How soon can I get back to where it was? In other words, our top priority becomes to escape the trial as quickly as possible. It's the exact opposite to what James is saying here. Consider it absolute joy. See the delight. See the purpose of God when you face trials of many kinds because it will cause your faith that's more precious than anything else to grow stronger and you will become more alive. But we want to escape. The moment trial comes. We want to fix it and sort our lives out so they get back to the way we think they should be. So no wonder we need to ask for God's perspective, to God's wisdom, as he promises there in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, and at this moment I think I do, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. don't know if you noticed, that's the you version verse for today. If you, uh, if you have a smartphone or a, or a tablet, uh, version is by far, in my opinion, the best way of reading the Bible. Just type version into Google and a whole world awaits you. And uh, if you saw this morning, that's the verse uh, that's on the homepage uh, today. Wisdom to see the trial, to see the circumstances, to see what's going on from God's perspective. So what is God's wisdom What do we know about God's ways? What wisdom can we absorb and reflect on in order to help us edge our way towards what James is saying, that whenever, whenever you face trials of many kinds, consider it joy, because you know what God will be doing in the midst of it. So what what might that godly wisdom be? Firstly, God's wisdom in trials. Number one, trials are here to stay. Bad news at the beginning. Trials are here to stay. Whenever you face trials, it's not, it's not, it's not when, or it certainly is when, it's not if, it's not maybe, unfortunately, a few of you Christians, while most of you will sail on through to heaven, one or two of you will have a trial every now and again. That's not what's in the Bible at all in any way, shape, or form. And in his presence, you remember that song, The Problems Disappear? That was another lie we sang quite heartily. We even clapped for that one uh, because it was fast, so we thought we ought to clap. And you think, what nonsense. All right, James and the church are under mega pressure at the moment. They're under trials that you and I know nothing about in terms of their intensity and what's going on with them. Trials are not a momentary blip. They are here to stay. They are part of the mosaic of our lives, especially, I would say, as Christians. 
Jesus says, we will have trouble. I've told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. That's a great promise, isn't it? Because in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You see, I think I've often lived with the illusion, often lived with the illusion that after the next breakthrough, when the next trial or difficulty or valley has been passed, then I'll be in a much more spacious place and I might look around and it might become a trial-free environment. We might think like that as church. Once we get through whatever the challenge is at the particular moment in time, that then we'll reach this kind of trial-free existence. There'll be no more troubles once we've sorted out this one. Once we've made sure that the music is so perfectly balanced that no one is happy, then there'll be no more trials or struggles in our church. Or whatever the issue might be, and we could add loads of issues, loads of things we're unsure about. So, for example, I kind of uh, might have been tempted to think that once we start seeing people regularly come to faith, then wow, what a great place that'll be, uh, and uh, we can ease back a bit. Actually, as that starts to happen, we see more struggle, more difficulty, more trials, more things that we need to face. Uh, And we have to burst the bubble on the illusion that a day will come that'll be trial-free. But a day will come when the blessings will be over. Uh, And those of you that have, uh, that's kind of... um, uh, uh, know some of the things that God's been teaching me over these last uh, uh, few months. One, well, one of the things is, uh, f- for me is to expect God's blessings to increase. Who's up for that? With an expectation that God's teaching me, expect us to go from glory into glory. I had made the assumption that an increase in blessing will mean a decrease in struggle. That seemed reasonable to a puny human being. To a little mind. I think that's wrong. I don't think the Bible teaches that at all. I've seen it with fresh eyes. The blessings will increase. The struggles, the difficulties, the challenges will increase with them. Fact, I think. Period. In this world, you will have trouble. And the idea that the breakthrough around the next corner, however brilliant it'll be, will take us to a kind of new utopia is an illusion, the bubble of which we need to burst. The blessing will increase, but so will the struggle, so will the opposition, so will the trials. Think about Jesus. He healed a guy's hand. I said this a few months ago. I'm still amazed by it as God's been showing me these things. He healed a man's hand and the religious people go, right, let's kill him then. That's there in Mark's gospel. It's as clear as day. Let, well, let's kill him then. You see, the opposition will increase. And we kind of think that perhaps once we get around the next corner as a church and we see even more people coming to faith, it'll be easier. It'll be less difficult. We'll kind of just be cruising along in an old momentum. Rubbish. It will get harder and harder and harder if we want the blessing to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Anyone dare give me an amen for that? Thank you. The trials are here to stay. And James did not write to his group of people and say, hang on, hold your nerve, soon all this will be over and we can get back to whatever we were doing. He says, no, you've got to see that in the trial, God will be right there in the midst of you. You've got to see it as joy because it is causing your faith to grow. And we know as the pressure has been applied to the church all around the world, what's happened? Faith has grown and uh, and people coming into the kingdom has multiplied. And in cultures and societies like our own where there's been very little pressure on us, we've become kind of spiritually fat and disengaged and not very fruitful. Secondly, 
God's wisdom for our trials. Trials are opportunities then to encounter God. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I'll fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Trials are an opportunity to encounter God in a way we never would meet Him without the trial. Never. And you will know from your experience, maybe from the experience of others around you, they will say, when I went through that, it was the most awful thing in my life. But in a weird way, I wouldn't change it because I found God in a way I never would have any other way. And Isaiah talks about the treasures in the darkness. And I forget where it is now. In the middle of it, treasures in the darkness. Google it. Google everything. It's all there. Um, uh, and what he's saying is, is it, you can go through awful dark times. And all of heaven weeps with you. It's not that God's not interested and, 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 and not available. All of heaven weeps. But in that dark place, there are treasures. Because we find God in ways we never otherwise would have found him. So what's your goal when you face a trial? As we've been saying, you might agree with me that as you face a trial, your goal is to get through it, to get it over with as quickly as possible. I, I want to uh, burst the bubble that that's a very futile, anxiety-inducing, frustrating way to live. Why? Because even if you manage to get through that particular trial and get things back on track, they'll probably never be back on track as you wish they were. But even if you do manage to get through that trial, get them right back on track, right back to where you were, breathe a big sigh of relief, there is another trial coming around the corner. And so if our focus is to get through these trials, to get to the other end, and then look out for the utopia, whack, another trial, got to get through this one, look out for the whack, another trial. If we live like that, I believe the enemy will keep us distracted through the whole of our lives that will never fulfill his purpose. You see how he might do that? Because when there's a trial on, it distracts me. Do you get distracted by a trial? I tend to, folk, I tend to knock me off, I tend to be thinking about it. Instead, uh, James is saying here, no, see the purpose of God. See what he's growing in you. So the question is, as trials are an opportunity to encounter God, will you face a trial trying to get through it as fast as you possibly can to get all your ducks lined up, which is absolutely exhausting? But what if your goal, what if your goal in every trial was to know God better? What if your goal is not to be trial-free, but God-filled? Can you see how that might work in a totally different way? That in the midst of your trial right now, that you are wishing was over, that you're longing to fix, you feel out of control, you want to do everything to get this season of life that you're in at the moment over, But what if your focus was not that at all? What if your focus was in this trial right now? I want to know God better. I want to be God-filled rather than trial-free. Can you see that anything then that begins to cause us to lean on Him more, to trust Him deeper, to depend on him more earnestly, to draw more closely to him, to pursue him more fully, is a cause for joy. Hmm? No one sure about that? 
Intellectually, you can see how that might work, can't you? That if I'm longing this week to know God better, and if I can see God's purpose in the midst of struggle and trial is to grow my faith, to help me cling to Him more fully, then my attitude to what I'm facing totally changes. God becomes my joy. God becomes my focus. God becomes my life. That this trial that's coming against me that that I, I wish I could get rid of, I begin to embrace because it's a gateway, a doorway into a deeper, richer, more joyful walk with Jesus. Can you see why James 1.1 now is so important? If you don't get Jesus, if you haven't met him, If you don't long for him more than anything else, none of this makes any sense. You have to remember James, who said, I've given my whole life to this Jesus. He's my everything. He is the life that I long for. And and you can see James is saying, look, these trials that that humanly we want to get rid of, they become a doorway, a gateway that takes us deeper into God's purpose and God's joy in our lives. Thirdly, God's wisdom for our trials. Number three, trials of the soil in which our faith grows, which is what I was saying uh, just at uh, the beginning. And don't misunderstand James. He knew all about trials. James knew about Nero's persecution. He knew that Paul had been executed. He knew that some of the apostles had already been martyred. He'd watched, I suspect, as the elder brother. Would he have let Mary go to the cross by himself? I doubt it. He would have watched, I suspect, his brother die. He knew all about it. James knew that God had a big heart. James knew that God longs to be with us. And he says, look, there's a, there's a new way. There's a new way. Think about Jesus' death. Was it good? No. Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. They've got no idea what they're doing. Was it good? No. But was God working his purpose? Yes. So the Hebrews would say, even for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Somebody's still with me. Even for the joy, Jesus endured the cross. Why? Because out of trials and tribulations, God brings resurrection. A stronger faith, a greater passion, a renewed life. As Paul would say, we don't lose heart. Even though outwardly we're wasting, even though our circumstances are battering us and bashing us and crushing us on every side, inwardly, what's happening inside is growing stronger, deeper, richer, more joyful, more God-filled by the day. Which, of course, is where James himself ends. The trials are momentary and resurrection awaits. Jump with me to verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres. Having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life, a a victor's crown, an athlete that's won the race, someone who's undergone the test and broken through to the end. And if we don't have that kind of wisdom, if we don't see these things from God's perspective, if we don't embrace the trial because of the way it brings us closer and more, uh, more dependent on Jesus, We will be, he says in verse 6, like the man that's just tossed about, the woman that's just tossed about, blown here, there, and everywhere by the wind. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. And I wonder whether we're not as stable as we could be. 
Because we say that we want God's wisdom. We say that we want God's perspective. But when push comes to shove, we wrap our own wisdom around us. So that when a trial comes, I get angry with God for letting this happen to me. When a trial comes, I get panicked and exhausted trying to fix it all by myself. I get annoyed that I cannot control things in the way that I want to. When a trial comes, we long for it to be over, to get back to our false sense of security and our ungodly self-satisfaction that makes us feel safe. And so we say we want God's wisdom, and yet in the midst of the trial, we wrap ourselves up in our own wisdom, and we become angry and bitter and frustrated and out of control and fed up and tired and annoying and miserable. I've just described your archetypal Christian. Whoops. And, and, and where's the joy that eludes us then in those moments. The observant amongst you will know that we've missed out verses 9 to 11. This is the way these verses work. Up to verse verse 5, James is saying, look, real struggle for your Christian life will be how you face trials. Your Christian life will rise or fall on how you face trials. Then in verses uh, 9 to 11, he talks about a different trial. It's about your attitude to riches and poverty. And he says both to the rich and to the poor, if you misunderstand how you handle riches and poverty, that will also mess up your Christian life. And then he's got one more section to go. We'll come back to the riches and poverty another time because James himself will return to it later in the the letter. Verses 13 then to the end, uh, James says, look, there's another thing, final thing, that will mess up your Christian life if you don't have God's perspective, if you don't respond to it correctly, and that's your attitude towards temptation. Verse uh, 13 to 18. Uh, And so there's a contrast. We are to embrace trials but we are to flee temptation. Two totally different responses. We are to embrace trials, but flee temptation. In a nutshell, James puts it like this. Flee temptation because it will kill you. Trials, we've been seeing, are a gateway into a deeper walk with Jesus. Temptations are a gateway to certain death. Wouldn't you agree it's important which gate you walk through? One is life and the other is death. And maybe James puts them in this same chapter because so often they're all mixed up. A temptation and a trial can often look very similar. In fact, in the midst of trials, we might face our heightened or our strongest moments of temptation. And James is saying your Christianity, your faith will rise and fall on how you handle trials and temptations. As Christians, we can escape trial. That's what we've been talking about. And as Christians, we can embrace temptation. You see how naturally we live exactly the opposite to what James is teaching here. We flirt with temptation because it won't hurt, and it can't be that bad, and I won't really give in to it anyway. And so we can kind of move nearer and nearer towards temptation, and we move further and further away from trial. And yet James says it works the other way around. It's counterintuitive. The Spirit's way is not man's way. The Spirit's wisdom is not man's wisdom. It's time to embrace the trial, but to escape, to flee from temptation. Verse 13, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. And then verse 14. 
We're dragged away and enticed. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. That's how temptation works. It entices you. It leads you to believe it will be good for you that you will enjoy it. Have any of you persisted with a sin that you really didn't enjoy at the beginning? No. We wouldn't have started it. If we were not deceived or enticed, it promises something and delivers nothing. It promises life and delivers death. We think that trials promise death, but actually they deliver life. Temptation, on the other hand, promise life but deliver death. It promises joy. You wouldn't have started it if you didn't think it would bring you joy. You didn't go, I need help being miserable, so I'm going to have a go at this. It's quite serious in here this morning, isn't it? You know, kind of. We're drawn to the very things that kill us and squeeze the very ounce of joy from us. Can you see again, hey, if you haven't got God's wisdom, you're pretty stuffed here again. Because the worldly wisdom says, let's get away from all the trials, let's make life as safe and secure and as happy as I possibly can, and, and if that means giving in to whatever temptation I like, then I'm going to go for it. Is that what the world says? More or less. And James is saying, no, it works right the other way around. You're easily deceived, and deception becomes the womb in which desire is conceived. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. Once desire has been conceived within you, it is very difficult for it not to go full term and lead to uh, 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 disobedience and lead to a wrong action. Which is why Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, lead me not into sin. No, he doesn't. He says, lead me not into sin temptation. I've got to keep away from temptation itself because if I begin to flirt with temptation, I will be deceived and desire for whatever is wrong will be conceived within me. And there is an inevitability, James says, it gives birth to sin when it's fully grown and gives birth to death. Desire will lead to disobedience and disobedience will lead to death. Here it is in a nutshell, these verses from James. Embrace trials, flee temptation. Got it? That's it. That is the journey that will produce within our lives a joy that is deeper than we might have ever believed. The early church writers that knew Jesus and talked about rejoicing always and talked about God's joy being in them faced trials and troubles like you and I have barely imagined. And yet they discovered that in the trial, their faith grows. Discovered in the trial, they find God in a way they never would have found him. But all the while, they were resisting temptation. They were fleeing from it. They were keeping the, 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 a big circle of protection around them because they knew that if they allowed themselves to get close to temptation, there was the danger that they would be deceived. And as soon as they were deceived, then desire would be conceived. And there is inevitability of disobedience and death that follows. I've got two things, two questions. Invite you to respond this morning two ways. Number one, in your trial today, 
And I don't in any way uh, mean or, or intend to make light of your trial. I've got no idea what you're going through. I have for some of you, of course, and you have uh, with, with each other. But no, no intent of making light of saying it doesn't, uh, this is not a misunderstanding about the gravitas, the pain, the anguish of what you face. These guys in James' time really knew the pain and the anguish of it all. That they understood that. This is not a flippant, let's be happy anyway type of Christianity. This is very real about the pain and the anguish. But the invitation is this. Are you willing in the midst of the struggle and the difficulty and the trial, are you willing to say, my focus will now be Jesus? I'm going to give up trying to fix it. Now, that's not to say that if you can't fix it, you shouldn't, of course. But I'm going to give up trying to control it. I'm going to give up worrying about it in, the, in that kind of very negative, spiraling way. I'm going to give up trying to manipulate this, that, and the other to get through it, my focus will be Jesus in the midst of what I'm going through right now. And secondly, in your temptation today, whatever that is for you, in your temptation today, uh, are you willing to flee from it? Are you willing to do whatever it takes to stop desire being conceived? Uh, Jesus said, if you've got a problem with temptation, just chop it off. Simple as that. Hands, eyes, whatever, just chop it off. And, and whilst it's a, it's a picture, it's a metaphor, he said, it's this serious. Do whatever it takes. Do whatever it takes to flee the place of temptation. And I'm going to invite you, if you want to respond in these moments, to stand. Now, some of you would have happily stood in the first category because we all have difficulties, and that's fine. But, but now I've lumped it in with being tempted. It's a whole different ballgame, isn't it? Because you're worried that people might think, well, perhaps I'm one of the ones that is being tempted. Let's be real, shall we? There's nobody here that isn't being tempted. Hello? Is it just me? Is it just me? Make me feel better. Just go, oh, it's okay. It's just you, Simon. Go and deal with it. Get some help. <laughs> hey? So, so you can stand. And some of you are starting to stand already for, for a trial or attempt. It doesn't matter what. Because those of us that are sitting down, in a sense, are the ones that the people standing up need to be reaching out to because we're the ones struggling. So whatever it is, don't stand for all kinds. Don't, don't just stand. Stand for the specific thing that you know that God's just laying on your heart. You're a trial and you say, my focus is going to be Jesus. My focus is going to be Jesus. And, and as I started talking about temptation, something clicked right in for you and you go, that's it. That's what the Spirit's speaking to me about today. And I'm deciding today that I'm not going to, I'm going to have to change that, do that, do something different, talk to someone. I'm not going to stay in that place of temptation anymore. Holy Spirit, thank you for speaking into our lives this morning. Thank you that your word has power to change us. Thank you that we need God's wisdom, that by ourselves we get it all the wrong way around. By ourselves we, 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 we seek to escape trial and embrace temptation. And yet this morning we're saying, in the trial we're going to embrace Jesus and we're going to flee from temptation. And I'm asking, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, would you minister to those people that are standing right now? Would you give them everything that they need?
Would you whisper to them in the quiet place? Thank you that if we seek you, even in the darkest moments of our lives, we will find you because there is no place that we can flee that will be outside your presence. You found that young man in a pigsty miles away from home. You can find us today wherever we are, whatever trial we're in, whatever difficulty, whatever circumstance. And there is no sin. There is no failing. There is no mistake. There is no error that Jesus can't clean, sort, forgive, renew this morning. Jesus, would you minister to your people? Jesus, now. So I'm asking, Lord Jesus, right now in these moments, I'm asking you, Lord, uh, to speak your word to all those, your word of, uh, uh, the word of your presence, your life-giving presence, to those that are right in a dark valley. Even though I walk through a valley of the shadow, I fear no evil, for you are with me. I'm asking that today there'll be a breakthrough and we'll see your presence in the midst of the darkness. We'll see your light where it's foggy and dark. And I'm saying to you all in the name of Jesus, if you confess your sin today, he's faithful and just and he will forgive you and cleanse you and dress you in a robe of righteousness. These are his promises for us to receive. In Jesus' name, Jesus' name, let's all stand.